Welcome to the Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. Thank you for joining me today in the podcast series that explores everything to do with experience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Experience. And I'm super excited today to introduce my guest for today's show, Michael Gale, who's the author of The Digital Helix, uh, the best-selling book on digital transformation. So, Michael, uh, welcome to the show. Welcome. It's, It's good to talk literally halfway across the world with each other. Maybe, you know, just without sort of prolonging all of the accolades and your vast experience, can you just give us a really (laughs) quick little introduction to all the other great work that you do? Because you're certainly a very multifaceted person. So my mother always said, be humble. And she's absolutely right, because we always do be humble. Um, I have been very lucky, I think, to work at three parts of a world that have just collided. One, I think, is the whole comprehension of digitizing technologies. Uh, The second is this comprehension of how do you change business processes and models? I worked at Monitor Group with Michael Porter to do that for six or seven years. And the third issue is actually algorithmic development. How do you build algorithms that help divine life? And I managed to build a couple of software service companies, uh, one that was sold in 2006, the other one sold for about a quarter of a billion in 2016. So I've got to see three parts of a world uh, that I never thought I'd, co- I'd experience when I came over to the States in 93. It's a really scary time right now with COVID, uh, but I also think it's a fascinating moment for reflection and potential transformation. Well, and that's fantastic because I think we had originally discussed, you know, thinking about the digital reality, which was more, I suppose, connected with the, the theme of digital transformation and and sort of from my perspective, you know, employee experience and the future of work. I suppose knowing that we are in this very, you know, uncharted waters, how do you now reflect on the great work that your book outlined on digital transformation and what the opportunity is now for organizations to emerge and recover or whatever the right word is as we now maybe take a more optimistic view to where next? Wow, that's a big question. It's like, what's the meaning of life when I go 24? I think there are three things, actually, uh, particularly for the CHRO, particularly for the CEO, and particularly for the board, they really need to ask. There's no doubt, we just finished some research across the globe. Survival is, frankly, dominating the mindset of most CEOs. About 40% of these companies are going, Right now, as of the end of April, I think survival is the prime operative for us. But that's only 39%. And what we've noticed, I think, is about about a quarter are really starting to lean into this world being very different going forward. So I think there's a couple of things that really drive this for the CHRO. I think there's another one for the CEO that's a big deal. I think the first thing is people are dead important. And because we've seen people working at home, you know, 93% of us work at home right now, when it used to be just 5%. Maybe 25% of us took a day at home a week. How we get people to work together in a world where you can only interact digitally is as complicated as sending somebody to Mars where there's a 20-minute delay between the signal in Houston and the signal in the spaceship. It's really, really difficult. So unless you build the right technology, the right processes, and I think the right culture, it's going to be very difficult to sustain over a long period of time a work-from-home corporate culture. And that sort of sounds like a crazy statement. But if we get wave two, wave three, wave four of it, and I hope that doesn't happen, we may be in and out of a virtual workspace for the next 18 months to two years. This is not going to be solved 
in the next four weeks, maybe in the next four months. So a digital reality now is how do you get people to be the best versions of themselves when they are geographically isolated, working at home, and for many people it's not a good model, and also working in a really anxious sort of industrial sector. And I think that's where the CHRO and the CEO really is going to have to lean in and be a lot more positive, a lot more supportive, a lot more transformative of their staff. I think the second question for the board and the CEO is going to be when we hire people going forward, when we hire technology in, if the people in the technology are not adaptive, there's no way they're going to survive a world that is going to be, I think, in some form of crisis, anxiety and, and sort of discord over the next two or three years. It's not We're not going to get back to a new normal. There'll be a new, a new new normal. And I still don't believe that most companies have started to discuss that properly. So just the act of discussing this new normal, realizing that humans are enormous assets. And if you can't get highly adaptive technology, you're just not going to be successful. Does that sort of make sense? No, it does. And I think there's a couple of um, key tenants there that I think have been dominating quite a bit of my conversations, which is, I still think we've got a fundamental issue, which is, I'm kind of using the language that was still, for me, stuck very much in most organizations with a scientific management DNA or OS. And, and we keep driving that efficiency and optimization at scale type model, which I don't think always values people. Uh, even though there are some good initiatives in organizations that are structured that way or focused that way. And I think to people like John Hagel's point, I think we've got to get back and not just deal with how people are working, but actually really try and reinvent what work is. And I think there's the technological aspects that we've been talking about, which is really the second point about automation and AI and all of the, the effects and potential impacts of that. And then we keep using these words about adaptive and continual learning. But I think we've got to find the recipe that says we've got to redefine what our organization is, move out of last century's thinking, value people, because the the people are the thing that no one can replicate. And we've got to build an ecosystem that puts them at the middle. So I totally agree with that. And I also, being a pragmatic person, can absolutely understand that for a lot of organizations, it is a matter of survival and that's going to be dominating their their mindset. But I suppose there's a lot of opportunity there and I think that's what we need to be focusing to somewhat equally or maybe some proportion seize that opportunity to transform. Well, it's such a big issue. It's funny when we use these words because it almost sounds intellectually trite, which I want to avoid. There's a fundamental question you bring up about what is the value of the human in a fundamentally digitally transforming world, a lot of companies, I think like 72% of them when we track them, are still basically digitally wrapping. A piece of digital here, a piece of digital there. The COVID-19 has exposed that as being very shallow. It's like sort of saying, hey, I'm not going to repair the roof. I'm just going to put some sticky tape up there or some of that awesome spray that, you know, you could put on a gutter and it sort of can sink or swim. I think the problem is that we have generated a business school view of optimization versus a reality which requires adaptiveness as being core to your DNA. But Google did not have a business model that was anything as large as this when it first launched, right? But their consistent ability to look over the near the horizon and see what's possible means they've been able to grow exponentially. You know, at the end of the day, if you look at the market cap values of Amazon, look at it, Google, Uber, and these other organizations, their market cap values are about their potential width of opportunity I think we tend to reward executives for narrow, mechanical, repetitive, forward-like execution, which is just not going to be rewarded in the new world. 
you're enjoying another wonderful episode of the Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you and your organization want to redesign work and drive experience, please reach out at rodneyhobbs.com. Now let's get back to the show. No, and I like I, I saw that from the Deloitte's research, that kind of zooming out, zooming in. And also, I like the uh, the little quote that says, why did God create the world in seven days? And that's because he had no legacy. And I, <laughs> and I, I think it's somewhat, we've got to break this kind of tradition because, um, you know, a shift has to happen. You know, I just can't see that we come out of this and sort of, you know, Monday rolls around. And everyone just jumps back in their car and, and everyone's back in the office. And I think that I was trying to think that, you know, the response at the moment, which is still largely where we're at, we're responding, has been really just to stretch the existing type technology. And isn't it funny that now Zoom has become a verb? Well, but that happens with everything. Kleenex, at the end of the day, what marks a seismic shift is when something that used to describe it becomes an action statement, the verb, you mm. know. And, I, you know, we Xerox things, we Kleenex stuff. And I just think that look how quickly that happened. Yes, it's a very dominant platform, and I love it, as you do. But it takes a seismic moment. So if you look at the history of innovation, whether or not it's far back as Napoleon, right, and the fact he had to can food to go across Europe, that created an ability to reduce starvation, or it's women getting the vote after the First World War, or frankly, it's penicillin. It's seismic events accelerate, amplify, or suddenly drop things into instant, you know, value. And I just think what we're seeing in COVID nineteen is, is still this rolling out of what those moments of instant or amplified value are going to look like. Absolutely, and I suppose in in sort of not making this just theory, because I think a lot of people, you know, lack the bandwidth to really digest the thinking, which I think is another symptom of our age that we've got to actually, you know, these are big problems, as you say, or big opportunities, depending on which lens you take. And and there's no quick fixes. You know, I always loved the story of uh, the company called Adaptive Path back in the day when UX was first coming out. And I asked one of the founders, you know, where did you come by the name? And he told a story, this was Jeffrey Veen, told the story that there was a, a new university that got built and they didn't build any footpaths for the first year so that they could actually see where people walked rather than put the, the right angles in as footpaths. It's, and the, I always university of, that it's was the University of Brunel in London. Fantastic. And, it's, mm. and I always thought there was such a fascinating way of looking at it considering when I go back to my technical background, kind of I came in and I can't remember anybody really teaching me how to work. So I came in and as I've been reflecting more recently, I had a really bad case of IT, which was I was there to standardize and sort of propagate Taylorism that there was one way to do something. And it was the way that we deemed you got this notebook locked down in this way. And I like to now reflect that I'm recovering and I'm nearly much better that now <laughs> I realize that we've got to put people in an environment and there is no one way there is no best way there is we've got to cater for that uniqueness and and make and enable everyone to be their best selves and then we get into the whole thing that organizations are still trying to drive efficiency and optimization which is based on one way and we've got all of these different people that want to work in the way that best suits them 
and there's this collision that's been going on, but no one's kind of been recognizing it. And that's what I think we've got to sort of learn from this experience now that no one got asked to participate in this great big experiment of now proving that work is not a destination for most. So there's an interesting comment someone made to me about a month ago. Uh, the book, you know, very luckily has sold an awful lot of copies, right? About 35,000. And I'd actually gone to the web guy and we'd loaded one chapter on optimal mindset for high performance companies. And he said, you've had over 280,000 downloads. So my theory is this, organizations buy books, individuals need personal development. And that ratio of six or seven, eight to one actually, illustrates to me exactly your point. You shouldn't have that many downloads of a chapter because the reason why I get it is because it's a very relevant subject about being your personal best. And people talk about growth mindset, you know, executives try and induce it. But the reality is it's a highly personal decision. You either decide to lean in to your own future or you lean back and hope you can ride out the train. I think that the challenge we face, a lot of companies want to just lean back and hope they can ride the train. And that is a sort of, I think, a scary perspective. No, I think it is. And and look, you know, your book outlines some really, really useful things. I found it very refreshing um, in going through that. I suppose since the book um, and sort of what we're thinking now and maybe to be sort of pragmatic, what kind of insight or guidance would you offer to companies where let's be optimistic and say that they can seize this as an opportunity to accelerate and i've heard lots of good stories about how the fact that you know many sort of i more technically orientated projects from the lens that i was given have you know for two years they've been trying to roll out microsoft teams it happened in two weeks so it's amazing when some of the i would say it's the effect of gravity um is applied how quickly things can happen what would be some practical insights for organizations to try and embrace this as a catalyst to change? So I think there are actually three variables, and I won't say shock and awe because it has a terrible political association, but I think there's a need to put awe in front of people. One of the first activities we saw that really worked is you get 10, 15 people in a room and say, just imagine, right, each of you pick an industry, you know, manufacturing, transport, entertainment, right? What would those industries look like if they were digitally transformed in 10 years? Now, let's take people out of their box and say, just imagine. And if you look at all those huge sticky pieces that go on the wall, you suddenly realize that people's creativity to solve bigger issues in just a moment is absolutely there. That sort of imagination process works. I think the second thing is, look, this is this storm is coming. You can, ha- you can hunker down and hope it, the first wave goes over you which I think is what people try to do in sort of 2014. You could sort of lean in up to 2018 and go, okay, I'll have a try and struggle. Or you can get blown down by this sort of tornado that's about to hit us with 5G, the edge cloud, where it, it truly businesses become real life organisms. The way to work is to pick three areas inside your business that are important and are connected and do it there. Pick those three areas, whether or not it's dev, set cops or, you know, business applications to the cloud, whatever it is. Pick three things that are connected and win those because once you've ideated the opportunity in the around the world once you've picked those three opportunities internally and created a win you'll be fine and the third thing is be utterly transparent about what fails failure is part of the process if you're not failing you're not leaning in hard enough and i think putting that fail lean in picking the three connected areas and doing that initial ideation of hey how do you think other industries can change generates a sense of clarity energy and purpose that i think goes far beyond the traditional McKinsey, Bain, 
you know, Deloitte's view of let's do a project and see what happens. Yeah, I've been doing a, a lot of sort of research into kind of, you know, these little ideas of loops um, and very much that sort of, you know, breaking down into groups or smaller teams. Um, one one question that I would love to get your view on is I'm not a big fan of the idea of Agile, whether it be with a small A or a big A. I think Agile as a mindset and as a sort of a, a, an outcome, I want to be more Agile, is fine and required, which sort of goes with the words adaptive and, and possibly flexible, albeit they, they do have different meaning. And trying to recognize the difference between a complicated system and a complex system. But I see too many organizations using Agile as like a silver bullet, as if it becomes a new de facto operating system. And I think it's part of the solution possibly, but really you've got to be able to use those types of approaches in the right context, in the right system. Are you a, a believer in Agile or what's your perspective on that? I'll give you a metaphor. I think it's the same thing as saying, oh, blondes, they must have more fun. Or, oh, I want a quarterback a 6-4. Or, oh, actually, the best batsmen in cricket are less than 5-5. Five, five. It's a very dangerous simplification of, of a complex process so for example agile is great if you know exactly what you want and you have to do it quickly if you want the wrong thing and you're doing it in the wrong way you'll have an agile jump over the cliff so i think much like in a scrum discussion agile discretion that's really a word that's masquerading for quicker and cheaper it's not necessarily a word for better so one of the things we found is that the most successful digitally transforming organizations took twice as long to plan through that sort of stage model than organizations failing, hardly very agile. But their capacity to execute happened twice as quickly as the others. Mm. So I think the real issue is you've got to work out the challenges, understand what you're going to stop, start, do different, continue, where your culture and your technologies do and don't work, and then navigate through this process. This is not some rush journey to the, you know, the other side of the world where you think it's Indian, it becomes the West Indies. It's a thoughtful, well-orchestrated constantly moving process and most of the teams i've seen function agile are so exhausted at the end of it they're incapable of looking back on a common basis at metrics challenge you know uh, unelevated objective sets and trying to find optimal pathways to places versus best pathways you'd never ask a team to train for the olympics in an agile way because you know it'll happen right i just think we're trying to use language to force a behavior that is not the way the world needs to go no, and I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, IT seems to be very good at picking these things as ideologies because, as this, you know, the people that wrote the manifesto say, you know, it was a mindset to allow them to write better software. It wasn't designed to cater for running a business better. It was a mindset. And then we go and make it a tool set, a process, a certification, and to some people like a cult following um, like the Six Sigmas where we get belts and you get to perform rituals um, and we lose sight <laughs> of the fact that it's about shifting your mindset, not joining another club. Yeah, and problem solving, is, is, you're right, problem solving is complex because at the end of the day, many of the problems we face we don't know. So again, when we isolated out the algorithm for these really successful 28% of companies, in fact, in the last year and a half with Ford, two things became clear. Organizations confident about the future didn't actually use a lot of agile methodology. They, they took some fundamental shifts in how they think and they designed and acted and said, look, we are two and a half times more confident 
than our competition. And we work that out because we actually know what we're doing. So what ends up happening is, is I think we try and simplify everything down to you know, a very dangerous, simple statement that isn't actually true. Or if it is true, it's true at the end of the game, not the beginning of the journey, when we have to do the hard work. This is difficult. There's a reason why 97% of CEOs want to do this stuff, 72% are activating, and only 28% get it. It's not that easy. You can't buy it. You can't make it happen overnight. It's a very long journey. The most successful CEOs told us we, on average, spend 17 and a half hours a week. That was the 28%. The 17% after that, we're spending 10 hours, and then the rest of people are spending three. So you just got to get past a level of intensity and engagement that far exceeds, you know, what are operationally efficient business models. Yeah, and I, I, I read somewhere, you know, it's kind of the good analogy was like a recipe. And so if you've got all the ingredients and, you know, you're somewhat proficient, you can follow a recipe and you will get the desired outcome. The difference is that when something goes wrong or different, you really have no way of accommodating that. But if you're a chef where you've been trained and you understand, you know, sort of the, the art and the science and the craft of cooking, then you can make a wonderful meal from whatever's in front of you. And it's the difference that we seem to have a logic where we think we can just pick a recipe from somewhere else. We can cut and paste that wisdom and apply it. And I think the wiser people out there, one of them being, you know, the, the experience out of Toyota was you've got to go and do the work yourself. You've got to fall over and learn those lessons for yourself. You can't just pick up someone else's wisdom. Well, that's why we often say that the most successful digitally transforming companies don't buy, don't buy consultants. They learn through battle scars how to do it. It's exactly the same thing. And the most successful organizations were outsourcing about 25% of the learning. The least successful were outsourcing about 95%. And there's a reason. You've got to get some stuff done, but you've got to own your own DNA. You can't just mess around and give it to somebody else. You're enjoying another wonderful episode of The Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please ensure you subscribe, like, and share. So that's a really good segue to, I mean, how would you view what is going to define leadership success out of this crisis? And, and I suppose going forward to creating a more digitally sort of platform as a company, what do you think it, that that might look like? So I think there are three basic requirements. One of it is not going to be very digital, but it's real. I think economically we have to get through a situation of, of cash crunch crisis of, product category crisis and clients go, yeah, you may be out of this, but I'm not going to spend money yet. That could take six months. I think survival has multiple stages to it. It's like batting in cricket. You may have to bat half a day to get the chance to really score a lot of runs in a short time period. That to me is the first objective. The second one is I think reflection. I think leaders need to say, look, I was in that business last week. Uh, the last six months have battered that sector what sort of opportunities has it created for us? And it's got to have the vision to start planning for that alternative world now. So as, as they are scrapping for resources, scrapping for attention, they have to run this parallel. This is the view of the world going forward. I think the third skill is you need to be extraordinarily grateful to your people. Yes, people are very frightened, nervous and anxious. And the act of having a job right now is, is in itself a distinguishing factor that probably hasn't been true since the 1930s. 
But I think gratitude between staff, gratitude between leadership and a sort of interactive honesty will actually equip much better organizations to leave this in at least a psychologically healthy way. No, that's very well said. And I suppose from that, you know, there is a reality, a, a somewhat harshness sometimes that we have to think about, you know, things as being a little bit more black and white or binary. I mean, what do you think the future is? What do you think the, the, the winners and the losers, what does that look like in your view? Well, I think we know the losers already. I think there are, and this is a terrible thing to say, but you can certainly see it in the US in the food retail business. The retail industry, physical retail is is gone uh, and it's absolutely disappeared beyond the experience you may have or the locality you buy from. But we have taught a population, we're teaching a population right now what it's like to consume on the fly small slices of everything from TV at one end to even food at the other. I think our capacity to lose commitments to brands we've worked with and retailers we've worked with is at a sort of crisis point right now because you're going to buy from someone who can deliver to you. You can buy from someone where the transaction's easy, where you have choice. Unless someone can make it easy, choice-driven and convenient, I think it's very difficult to see a lot of companies surviving. I think in the industrial environment, AI in particular, uh, open source processes will just accelerate so that these companies force themselves into becoming digital platforms. But I think businesses based on locality, businesses based on where we're one of 500 players out here, all that stuff goes. I mean, Macy's, Dillard's, Nordstrom's, I mean, all these firms I think are absolutely bankrupt because they can't offer choice, ease, availability and cost at the same time. And that's what we're training people to appreciate. And particularly if we leave this world like we did in 1930-31, people will not be as well off as they've been before. There'll be a heightened sense of value. And there's lots of research was done on this. Luxury will be fine. But value-based purchasing is going to become a huge deal for the next three to eight years. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're a great scholar of history and, and sort of seismic change in the history of that. And obviously there's many examples, you know, through history, I suppose. What can you share from that body of uh, knowledge that you have to what happens after a crisis with human capital? So I think history has shown probably, if I think about three major societal shifts, right? You know, I could go back to the Black Plague of 1384 uh, and you could see an extraordinarily agrarian society, 95% of people. The shifts were not that dramatic. Uh, there were definitely some shifts in agricultural technique, uh, some philosophies around things called post-anthesis management. It wasn't that great. You get to the, some of the really bad recessions of the 1870s, and I think you get to actually post-World War One. And some of these changes are really brutal. I think you'll see an extreme polarization of wealth. You know, we could gut the middle classes out of the global economy, and they'll either be the hyper-rich or the sort of rest of us struggling. I think that what tends to need to happen in these situations is a shift in the philosophy of what government is about. You know, is government about building a backstop for something like this, or is government about freeing up the wheels of industry to make mistakes as they want? The 30s in the U.S. was a very interesting time for development. The car industry, aviation, a lot of really interesting things came out of the industry in the 30s that were born because people said we're going to lean into something new and different. I think the world we're going to see going forward will demand vast arrays of us reskill. Uh, either it's into AI-type work or open-source work or technology-based work. That sort of low-value service economy is going to go. McDonald's is already implying this. 
by trying to strip out employees in their franchises operations. So instead of having 25 people employed, they're like, use this technology, you'll only need eight. So I think some of the very lowest paying jobs in retail, in food are going to disappear. And that creates an enormous subclass in society that's very dangerous. So the traditional Phillips curve is, hey, if you get about two and a half percent unemployment, you've probably got the lowest possible level. We actually went below that, if you think about that at Christmas. We're now about to get back to unemployment levels that are close, if not higher, than what we saw in the Great Depression of the 30s. We're going to have to find ways to get people new jobs really quickly because many of those old jobs are going to be just destroyed, lost, or transformed into skills that won't suit those historical workers. Yes, and we're seeing that here with, uh, you know, obviously the airline industry and one of our, you know, we didn't have that many to start with, with the two major airlines, but uh, one of those is obviously was uh, was not going into this in very good shape and certainly has now gone into administration. So there's lots of unanswered questions in those types of industries and uh, very valuable insights that you've shared. Um, it's been wonderful having the opportunity and very, very appreciative, Michael, for you making time to, to chat with oh, us Oh, this is today. fun. This is, this is a really difficult subject. So many people don't want to go there. So take enormous credit for being up for that journey because these answers are neither necessarily pleasant or positive, but I'd much rather we know the truth and navigate through it than we sort of stick our head in the sand and don't pay attention. No, and I think it's important, you know, many years ago, I remember, you know, having a lot of conversations where we termed the being real and we started to try and have very straight talking, real conversations, because I think there is a degree of honesty that we need to, to have because these are difficult and these are difficult and challenging and complex things that we're all in this together, you know, and we need to find a way to the other side. Um, but look, I, again, really appreciate your time. One final thought, if you could share with us, what can, what can people take away from our chat today as something, you know, that they should either really start thinking something very tangible, practical, if they're a business leader or just anyone, you know, what can they do now? to start preparing them in whatever context is relevant, what could you offer as one insight? I, I won't offer it. I'll, I'll offer it just from what I've seen everywhere. I think as leaders, we have a fundamental responsibility to guide the future of our organization. You can define it by customers. You can define it by employees. You can define it by stockholders. It doesn't matter. But as leaders in organizations, we are like shepherds. If we cannot correctly orchestrate the future of, of everything around us, then we failed. And I think what success is going to increasingly look like for a leader is curious, humble, caring, driven energy. So if you can put humble, curious, driven energy into place, you will be a better suited leader, lead, suited leader for the future than many leaders that came into this crisis right now have sort of revealed. Very good. And I think that, you know, only time will tell, but hopefully I'm going to be optimistic that we will look back at this and we will see a lot of great leadership shining and not by title, but by action. So, Michael, again, thank you so much for making your time available to be on the show today. How can people find more about you, connect with the great things that you have out there? Can you just give us a quick glimpse of the best way to find all your wisdom. Oh my God. Uh, my wife might suggest it's in the restroom. Um, 
grab me on LinkedIn. I'm on there every other day, maybe even two, three times a day. Let's start conversations. Let's share. Knowledge, in my opinion, a digital economy should be open source. So everything I've ever done, you should be able to get hold of free and easily. If you want to listen to the book, it's up for free on the website, link.digital. You can listen to each chapter, listen to the whole thing. You can run it twice, even three times faster than it's actually spoken with. Uh, the regular podcast on Forbes, Forbes uh, Futures and Focus, is up on the Forbes website. And honestly, just connect on LinkedIn because it's such an easy format for all of us to do whenever or however we need to do it. Well, I encourage everybody to go and uh, make sure that they listen to that and obviously your podcast as well. So thanks again, Michael. And for everyone, thank you for joining us today on another episode of The Business of Experience.